1: Time machine? Out of a DeLorean?
0: your name was at the top of the list. Well, that's good to know, sir. It was a short list. There's trouble in Russia. So they called us. And we're going over there and bringing the most lethal killing machine ever devised. The last time we hit this state of emergency was
1: 32 and a half years ago during the Cuban missile crisis. So this is what it's all about, gentlemen. It's what we train for. Ship. Diving officers who murder the ship make a depth 150
0: feet. On the 1MC, dive, dive.
1: This year, we have a properly formatted emergency action message from the National Command Authority. What we've always known Bravo, Echo, Echo, Charlie, Alpha becomes what we've always feared. Telling this to the captain, Russian rebels have threatened to launch against our country and are fueling right now. This is not a drill. Now, so we will possibly submerge submarine. You find out who that is.
0: Receiving emergency action message. Recommend. Alert 1.
1: The battle for survival begins. That's a message fragment. So we don't know what this message means. Our target package could have changed. I've made a decision. There's no place for fear. He's lost his nerve. I'd rather go out myself and get this one wrong.
0: There's no room for mistakes. If we launch and we're wrong, what's left of Russia is going to launch at us. I'm captain of this boat. I don't have to think this over. There's no time for doubt. The missile system's ready to launch in six minutes. You repeat this order, or I'll find somebody who will. Hell
1: no, you won't, sir. And nothing can stop the tide. Come on, show torpedoes in the water. Right forward. 1,000 yards of closing dive. Make you depth 1,200
0: feet. Hang hey, on, everybody. We cannot launch out missiles unless both you and I agree.
1: They're fueling their missiles. It's right on top of us. <laughs>
0: Block Captain Ramsey's in his state room Fire one now Give me the missile key Mr. Hunter
1: Sir we are going down I'm the commander of this ship Crimson Tide God help you if you're wrong If I'm
0: wrong then we're at war God help us all Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Film Feast podcast. I am your host, Matt Bledsoe, uh, and this week is volume eight of Unscottable, which is our ongoing series on the films of director Tony Scott. This week, we are talking about Crimson Tide from 1995. Uh, to help me talk about it, I'm happy to be joined once again by one of my favorite people to talk movies with. Uh, you've heard him on the Daniel Buckler Show, and he's the host of the Atkins Undisputed podcast, as well as one of the co-hosts of the new Action for Everyone podcast. It's Mike Scott. Mike, how you doing?
1: Hey, buddy.
0: Oh man, I am happy to talk to you again. We were just saying before we went on the recording here. It's been a very, very long time. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's
1: been a well, and you know, I mean, I remember when you you threw this out as something you were thinking about doing, and I like immediately like (laughs) my claim to this movie. And it has been an agonizing like nine months or however long it's been (laughs) waiting to get to this point. So I am I am I am bouncing up and down in my chair right now. Uh, excited <laughs> to get to talk about this one.
0: Uh, well, I'm glad you're still excited. Yeah, that's the kind of the one weird thing about doing like the monthly Unscottable is, and I pitched it like months ago, and I got a lot of um intro, people were excited. Uh, and I had to remind people like, it, it's once a month, so it might be a long time if you ask for something like on the back half of Tony Scott's career. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm happy we're finally to this point, we're halfway his filmography which is insane because he had 16 movies and we're on eight so um and it's a good one i'm gonna say that right up on top i think it's a really really good one so i'm excited to talk about it with you
1: <laughs> yeah me too every every new episode that would come out i'd jump back on imdb and i'd count uh <laughs> you know like okay 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 yeah so uh <laughs> Yeah, this is uh yeah i'll 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 lead off by saying that too. This is a this is a good one. <laughs>
0: it's, yeah, I, I don't think we're going to be shy about our hiding our feelings about this one. <laughs> like how much we we enjoy Crimson Tide. So, um yeah, Crimson Tide is uh, like uh, man, I don't even know where to start because <laughs> it's a big one for Tony Scott. He's back with Bruckheimer Brockheimer and Simpson uh after a few how do I call them misfires because they are like beloved movies, but financially they were, they did not do well. Last Boy Scout and true romance, but kind of bombed. Uh So he goes back to, you know, Simpson and Bruckheimer, who had all his success, all the biggest hits were with them. And they do crimson tide. And I, you know, I will, I'm not going to bury the lead. This movie I think is incredible. <laughs> and I, I don't know about you. I'm going to ask you, but I, I came around to this like fairly late because this came out in 95 and I was I was eight years old, so I wasn't rushing out to see Crimson Tide. But, but and it, as I was younger, I was like, oh, this is kind of a typical like AMC, TNT dad movie. And I was so wrong. <laughs> younger me was so ignorant because uh, this movie is much, much better than your typical, uh, I call it dad movie. So uh, I'm curious to hear your like general overall thoughts on Crimson Tide. Yeah,
1: so uh, it, it's interesting, and we can talk about this a little later, uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned that Tony was coming off of some you know, box office uh, failures. Well, so were Simpson and Bruckheimer. I mean, they were almost persona non grata uh, until between about the years of 1991 and 1995, uh, they were basically persona non grata in Hollywood. Uh, and then 1995, they come back in a big way and this is a foundational part of that. So it is funny to me, or it not funny haha, but interesting to me that both of them sort of needed to find one another again to strike that, that gold. Uh, I actually saw Crimson Tide in the theater. I didn't see it like opening weekend, but I did see it in the theater because, uh, you know, I'm a bit older than you. And so in 95, I was actually in I was a freshman in college. Um, and so I, I saw this in the theater and was just absolutely blown away by it and uh, have continued to be blown away by it in the, you know. 20 years since, or 25 years since. And uh, every time I see it, I just, it's kind of one of those movies. I don't watch it every year or anything. I watch it maybe once every five or six years. And every time I watch it, I just absolutely fall in love with it all over again. This is, Tony's got a lot of great movies, but this is hands down my favorite Tony Scott movie. That's why I jumped on this one when I had the chance, because for me, it's not even a, a contest as far as which one of his movies is my favorite. I I love everything about this from top to bottom.
0: Yeah, I really I I figured it was your favorite. Is what we'd said because I always ask that question. I was like, I'm pretty sure this is Mike's favorite uh, overall Tony Scott movie. You picked a good one because it's I I've, I've not been I was trying to dance around like oh my favorites and rankings, what I've been bad at on this show. So I just keep saying like. My *Crimson Tide* is not my personal favorite, but I I think it is his top to bottom his best movie, and I think it's that's almost hard to argue. I feel like of course everyone have their personal favorites on what's their favorite Tony Scott movie, but I feel like just with *Crimson Tide*, everything clicks. Like his direction, the script, the Hans Zimmer score, the editing, the acting, like everything is top notch in Crimson Tide. Like that's why every time I watch I cannot get over how good every aspect of this movie is. And that's the part that like, it gets better every time I watch it, it was funny, because I was looking at my letterbox. And since I've had a letterbox, I've watched this, I believe three times. And the first time it was like four stars. Second time was four and a half. This last time it was five stars. (laughs) So it's just like, it keeps getting better for me. Um, And I've, I've said many times, like I think Crimson Tide from a technical standpoint, I don't think he gets any better I think this is like the absolute mountaintop for for how good that filmmaking and not just him everybody involved I just think it's incredible um so yes uh, uh, being your favorite is it probably a lot of people's favorite I would imagine
1: <laughs> well and it's peak it's peak like Hollywood blockbuster cinema at a time when I would argue hollywood was at its peak making blockbuster cinema right you know we we all kind of lament what modern blockbuster cinema looks like i would argue that in a lot of ways the 90s was sort of the peak of the hollywood blockbuster because it hadn't become this homogenized thing yet every blockbuster was different directors Mm -hmm. could still put their individual stamp on it and so what you've got here is sort of the the ultimate of all of that and there's other movies that you could put in that category things like independence day or the rock and and stuff like that but but everything about this is so technically proficient and it's kind of the last of tony in that glossy blockbuster mold you know uh you'll talk about this next month, but the, the fan sort of transitions him into as, as I've seen him called online, which is a a name I'd never heard before, but it makes perfect sense. uh, Sort of sees him transition into Tony nine cameras, right? (laughs) The, the last half uh, of, of his career and and does manage to, to make not manage, but does make some incredibly great movies there. But he's not working in that sort of same glossy sheen. He's doing all his, his interesting edits and camera angles and all of that stuff. This is like you could run a line from say somebody like John Ford to Tony in this movie, the way that this is just such a perfect example of Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking at its finest. Everything, like you said, everything about it matt you know you've got chris lebenson who's one of the greatest film editors of all time you've got uh darius wolski who's one of the greatest cinematographers of all time you've got and i'm gonna make a bold statement here the best hans zimmer score that zimmer ever made in his fucking career in this movie. um it all just comes together in this perfect storm and then in the middle of all of it you know orchestrating it you've got Tony but in the middle of all of it you've got two of the greatest actors who have ever lived just going at it I mean you can tell that Hackman and Washington are just driving one another higher and higher and to be better and better throughout this entire movie
0: absolutely it's like watching like two athletes who are like, you know, the peak of like two of the best like NBA players going at each other one on one and like kind of testing each other. I felt like that I get that vibe. But I don't feel like anyone's chewing scenery, which I appreciate, even when they even when they have to get very loud and, and boisterous, you know, and they're yelling, and it, it never feels uh, hammy or like over the top to me, It it feels like when we get to that point where they are the argument breaks out which is that scene is so good when they that <laughs> the way that argument builds and when uh denzel wants to relieve him of command and he's trying to get denzel thrown out out of the uh off the area that i can't at the bridge uh and uh and that whole scene it the way it escalates i have just watched that scene like by itself sometimes it's such a good scene and just i'm marvel at their acting because it's it's so intense and it's so, but it's, it, they get to a believable point where they're both like they've lost their shit with each other. Basically they, they just, they, they've tried to be civil uh, and they just are, they've both at that point have it's a breaking point basically. And it's just so good how it gets to that point escalates. Um, and just watching them act off each other is like a treat. It's amazing. <laughs>
1: Well, and, and yeah, and like you said, it builds and builds and builds, you know, th- this is such a masterclass because the thing that's interesting, this is going to sound like I'm, a, I'm crazy for saying this, but the thing that's amazing about Crimson Tide is how not that much actually happens in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and hear me out on it. Um, because first of all, it's, it's, it's a very contained movie, obviously, uh, because we're in a submarine, but also even the action scenes, it's a lot of what I call Star Trek style action where you get, you know, Star Trek was the master at this. You get little glimpses, like when they're fighting the Akula, right? You get little glimpses of the subs, but really what it is, is a bunch of actors on a static set, like throwing themselves around while Tony and Wolski are like, you know, angling the camera at funny angles to make it look like they're sinking and stuff like that. And and so there's not, there's a lot of, at its base level, there's a lot of just static stuff going on here. But because of that, that allows Tony to build all this tension and then his actors are game for it. And so the action is in the dialogue. It is in the acting. It's It's almost like a, like maybe the biggest like blockbuster play (laughs) (laughs)
0: that's that's Um, no, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) uh,
1: Because that is where the tension is. And Tony is so like, I know when he gets to his later stuff, like man on fire and that, uh, you would argue that, that maybe that's more his true persona and he's more confident Uh, and, and he is confident there, but I think this is him at his most aggressively confident. He is, so unbelievably in control of this movie uh that it it just it, it it blows me away every time i see it and like you said that that scene that argument the way it builds and just everything where you know they're talking over each other and then finally denzel says you know i am relieving you of command and you know uh chief of the boat take escort the captain to his quarters and and george dizendro doesn't move and just the way tony frames denzel where he like clenches his fist and he goes, no, Cobb. You know, I mean, it's just so exciting without actually being that exciting. Right. And that's
0: so <laughs> yeah. Hard
1: to pull off. That is unbelievably difficult to pull off.
0: It is. Yes. I'm so glad that you put that so much better. Cause I, the thought I kept having, I know it doesn't sound dumb is that I, this is a dramatic thriller that Tony kind of shoots. And I would say paces like an action movie he makes you feel like it's an action movie when like what you said, there's not really too much that really happens action wise. It's a lot of dialogue um, and people arguing <laughs> with each other. Um, it's, it's kind of this amazing trick he pulls off. And that's why I was thinking my, like, my God, this movie in the hands of somebody else that wasn't Tony Scott could be, I don't think boring's the right word, but a much less exciting movie. I would, I would say <laughs>
1: Well, and, and especially because there's a a confidence of a camera movement here. So the other, one of the other big movies that Simpson Bruckheimer released in 1995 was of course bad boys. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and for a long time, it kind of looked like Michael Bay was the heir apparent to Tony Scott. He's obviously now become his own institution in and of himself. But if you contrast, say some of the tense scenes in NASA in Armageddon with the scenes in this uh, Bay's cameras all over the place. And Tony moves the camera a lot, but he always is moving it with purpose in this. Every camera movement is designed to, like you said, make you feel like this talking scene, this dramatic scene is an action scene. Uh, Hackman and Washington are punching one another with their words and he's moving the camera around in a confident way to show, you know, and again, because one of the brilliant master strokes of this movie at the script level is as Jason Robards will tell us, they're both right and they're both wrong. And so no, Tony doesn't let the camera fall in love with either you know, actor too much. He's always let, and as each one gets control, the camera is also getting control. He's, he's using angles to minimize Denzel or minimize Hackman, depending on who has the upper hand in any given scene. I'm, I'm not being as articulate as I would like, but, um, you know, hopefully I'm getting my point across about, Again, this is a brilliant movie.
0: (laughs) No, I think you are. You're saying it better than I I could. I I would have wanted to articulate articulate that as well, but you said it very well. And it's funny, I got to go back when you brought up that uh, they called them Tony nine cameras and on this behind the scenes, everyone was kind of, there was like a behind the scenes feature and some of the crew was like, Oh yeah, we got like four cameras going at once. It's crazy. (laughs) And I'm like, it's going to get a lot crazier in a few years, guys. Like don't, and I think the nine camera nickname came from our friend James or TJ Mackey, as he's known, or also the Tony Scott for life president. Uh, he, he, uh, he just posted some stuff funny enough from like man on fire behind the scenes and the amount of cameras that Tony's using (laughs) on man on fire, uh, is insane. And so like using four cameras on Crimson Tide, people are like, Oh, this is crazy. Um, (laughs) It's, it's, uh, it's gonna get crazier. And I feel like, yeah, the effect, he's using them for a point. That's the thing I always get kind of upset about people at Tony Scott, it's all style over substance. But I felt like his style was always in his, you might not agree, but in his mind, it was always, it was to a point, you know, it's, it's to show tension in Man on Fire. I know he was talking a lot about kind of showing uh, Denzel's characters, like mental state with all the stuff, the effects he's doing and things like that. Um, so all these things are just, you know, tools in his toolbox that he's using f- to a purpose. It's not just, you know, Oh, I'm just gonna have a bunch of cameras. Cause I think it will be cool. You know, it's not, it's not that he just wants to cover all this action, um, get all these angles that he can and, you know, work from there. And, um, that's a good, that's a great point you bring up about like, how the movie, I think a lot of people, you've got Denzel and Gene Hackman on opposing sides here. Gene Hackman wants to follow the order they got and send out the nukes. And Denzel has the separate order, the the second order is incomplete, and he wants to wait to get the rest of the order you know, to avoid nuclear war, which I think is a good idea. So I think a lot of people would assume that that the movie's sympathy kind of lies with Denzel. But the more I watch it, the more I realize like, no, there's really not, the movie's really not putting you on either person's side, but Denzel's such a likable guy. And I think most people would want to avoid nuclear war. <laughs> so he's kind of on the more popular side here, but the movie, I don't think it, it really pulls off well of like not trying to uh, pick a side. Like you said, it's it's trying to to show both sides. And like they say at the end, you're both right, you're both wrong, um, which I find to be like an amazing trick. I'm more impressed by the time I watch the movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it reminds me, in a in a in a way that's more sympathetic to have you ever seen the kane mutiny with uh humphrey bogart
0: no no I, it came up and i was reading about crimson tide though but i have not seen it oh absolutely staggeringly brilliant movie um it <clears throat>
1: was a play absolutely brilliant movie and the whole point is 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 humphrey bogart plays this captain who's kind of losing it and i'm gonna spoil the kane mutiny for people listening because you know the movie's 50 years old and the play's even older but um you know and so they stage a mutiny and then the last part of the the movie or the play is the trial where this defense attorney has to because all the people that staged the mutiny are on trial for mutiny and this defense attorney has to break down humphrey bogart's character uh to show that he's he's not all with it to justify the mutiny But then the end, he gets a monologue where he just tears into all these guys about how you destroyed a great man and you could have, you know, you could have worked with him. You could have done like you took the worst. Yes, you may have been right, but you took the worst possible way to resolve this situation. Very much akin to what Jason Robards does at the end of this, right? Where he just rips ass into both off the record. You've made a hell of a mess. you know, <laughs> and, and I love it because my favorite Jason Robards performance is as Ben Bradley and all the president's men. And he's basically doing the exact same performance here. Um, Mutiny on an American nuclear submarine, you know, like, ah, it's just, and that's what I love about the movie is it does get to kind of have its cake and eat it too, because we are on Denzel's side. We don't want nuclear war, but both characters are so proud and so full of themselves that it's an utter breakdown in communication, in the chain of command, in, you know, in, it's, it's actually kind of a nightmare scenario, right? Because the chain of command is one of the only things that keeps our military functioning. And so it it really does illustrate what would happen if that broke down in a way that, that allows us to come across. I mean, obviously, we like Gene Hackman less. They do give him some... Racist tendencies. I mean, I think that's the one way the movie really does make sure that you stay on Denzel's side is that Hackman goes racist, and uh, you know, and it's like, uh, uh, Hackman, why, Gene, why you got to go racist on this? Like, I have to ask
0: you about that. Sorry to interrupt, but I, I, saw, I saw someone else mention this too, and I'm like, did I miss this? I see this movie many times, and I'm not sure of what part they're referencing where he maybe like makes a racist comment in passing, or did I? Did I miss something or was it just, I, I'm not sure. Cause I read it's, that too. When I, yeah. it's
1: At the very end, it's at the very end when they're talking about the Lippin's
0: honor stallions. Okay. I yeah. thought that might've been it, but I wasn't sure. Cause I thought if they're white or black, that whole yeah, conversation. Exactly. They're amazing.
1: They're amazing beasts. They're white, you know, and then you get Denzel. Okay. Yeah. They're not from Spain. They're from Portugal. And when they're born, they're not white. They're black. Um, You know, and, and that was actually, a, that was actually a thing that was really prevalent in the mid nineties, especially weirdly in 1995 for some reason, because you had die hard with a vengeance where obviously there's a whole lot of stuff going on about that. And, and you get, speaking of Simpson Bruckheimer, you get dangerous minds. Like there was something weirdly in the zeitgeist in 1995, where it was kind of like, we were trying to reconcile with racism in this incredibly superficial way, not like we're doing it now where, you know, everybody's having to make these, these, you know, have these really hard conversations. It was very, it was a very facile way, but it popped up a lot in movies in 1995. And uh, I do remember even the first time I saw this thinking that that was a little bit of a, you'd set up Ramsey enough uh To understand why he might not like Hunter uh, without having to kind of take that cheap shot, Um, Mm -hmm. which I mean, it's, it's but on the flip side, an old school, you know, it's not hard to envision an old school military commander, this sort of Harvard educated up and coming black lieutenant commander. Well, if they're having a squabble, if they're having a scrap, it's not hard to imagine that he might immediately go to something racist to kind of put him in his place. Right. Uh, But it is a bit of a weird part that does somewhat, for me at least, deflate the tension a little bit of that very final conflict they have.
0: That's true. See, I was so focused on that point, that that, that little tiny argument or disagreement showing how you can think you're so right about something and then you're wrong. You know, Gene Hackman is so confident. <laughs> uh, apparently I read they're both wrong or something that the horses aren't from, uh, they're from, I can't remember where it was, somewhere. But the, the, in the movie, it's like the little point of you can be so sure of something and then find out you're wrong. And uh, and see, I was, and then Hackman too, at the beginning, they set up these little, they, they sprinkle these little nuggets of information there, which I find so interesting, a little passive aggressive moments where, um, right when Hackman brings Denzel in, and is interviewing him to come on the ship to to be his XO. And he says something about, uh, you know, you were, uh, I picked you off the list. You were the top of the list. And he's like, oh, thank you, sir. And Hackman's like, it was a short list. It's a very passive aggressive thing to say. Yeah. yeah. And and then there's some comment shortly after where all the other guys are walking down the hallway with Denzel who are going to be on the sub. And uh, they're like, oh, this is like his fifth or sixth uh, XO. It's like, what's it this time? Appendicitis saying that he's probably run off quite a few guys who were under his command.
1: Yeah, no, a- absolutely. And and that's, and that's, again, that is the brilliance of the the setup of, of this movie. You know, that this is what's funny when people immediately get upset about, Oh, there's six writers on this movie or, or whatever. And it means it's going to be bad. It, it doesn't because so, you know, uh, Michael Schiffer and Richard P. Henrik wrote this. And for those who don't know, Richard P. Henrik was a big fucking deal in the 90s. He was writing. He was he was like. Um, this is going to sound like an insult, but I don't mean it as such. He was like dollar store Tom Clancy. So he was just cranking <laughs> out like military thriller books. But this was a, he knew what he was doing, you know. And so they get this script and then they bring in, you know, everybody always wants to talk about Tarantino doing the punch-ups and whatever. But the more important person they bring in is they bring in Robert Town. Yeah. And he does (laughs) a a pass on the script. And that's really where a lot of that meat comes from. But still the bones were there in Schiffer and, and Henrik's script of this setup of the old and the new you know, what is the, does the military look like? And that's the other important thing to remember, you know, now we're in the, the world of the forever war and whatever, whatever shithole dystopian world we live in, in 2021. Like for those who are young, like, man, 1995 was pretty fucking great. Like we were out of the cold war. We're riding high on the Clinton administration. Like the economy's good. Like, obviously there's all sorts of shit going on behind the scenes that's bad. But we're really, it was a unique era where people had to sort of wrestle with what does the old military look like? What does the new military look like? And what does America, as the country that won the Cold War, literally established itself as the dominant superpower in the world? What does that mean for us? Uh, you know, and Crimson Tide. In the vein of a glossy Hollywood Simpson Bruckheimer blockbuster really wrestles with a lot of that shit way better than I think any blockbuster we get today would, to be honest with you. Um, I don't think a studio would even remotely let a major blockbuster like this come out today.
0: Oh, yeah, that's why I was <laughs> I agree. I was thinking watching it this time. I'm like, I know, I feel like we probably saw a broken record, especially if people are like younger than us, and they're probably like, Jesus Christ, you guys talk about. They don't make them like they used to, but but it really is different. Um, it's just it like you couldn't imagine a movie uh like this being like a big blockbuster in 2021. It might be like a streaming movie. Like I think Tom Hanks to a sub-movie for Apple, you know, like this year or something. Like I don't think of even with two big stars and you know, it's a cause at its core it's a dramatic thriller, which is like you know, Hollywood would want way more action or some, you know, it just wouldn't it just wouldn't probably happen. Uh, and I don't think it would try to ask all these hard questions. Like, you know, I, I do really enjoy the scene that I think is a Robert Town punch up. If I read uh, correctly where, um, they first get on the sub and it's kind of all it's Hackman and Denzel and all the officers sitting around a table and, and Hackman still kind of grilling Denzel about his like kind of worldviews and asks him about, he asks about, you know, how do you feel when we drop the nukes on Japan? How do you feel about war? Things like that. And, uh, all that kind of stuff that I just think makes the movie so much better to ask those kind of questions and get into that kind of dialogue. Like it might've, it might've dropped it in in some, you know, other <laughs> lesser movies. So uh, it just, yeah, it's, it's really special because things like this just don't come out that much anymore. Har- hardly at all.
1: No, no. Yeah. You get the great Denzel line of, of war itself is the enemy, which then also kind of comes back a little bit later. It not, not on point, but thematically, when he's talking to Cobb and Cobb's like, What if you're wrong? and Denzel says, If I'm wrong, then we're at war and God help us all, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and yeah, that, that's you get the great guy. I mean, this is the other thing about this movie, all right? We all know how great Denzel Washington is. I actually think this is my favorite Denzel performance this is everything that Denzel does well because one of the things i've always loved about Denzel is he's an incredible physical performer too not just verbal like the way he he's in such complete control of his body the way he moves the way he does things and that scene with Cobb where he's like they launch and we launch and and just the way he like crosses his hands where he's like our nukes pass each other in the sky you know he's so physically compelling uh that you just can't take your eyes off him and that's something that tony really i don't want to get ahead on your other episodes but that is something that tony was so good at dialing into um I just think there was no director and, you know, and this is, we should mention, this is the first time they teamed up, but it's certainly not going to be the last. There was no director that uh, got more out of Denzel and and more importantly, got Denzel, understood Denzel and challenged Denzel because Denzel's worked with Anton, Antoine Fuqua plenty of times too, but I don't really think that Fuqua sort of strikes me. This is no smear on on Antoine Fuqua. I like most Antoine Fuqua movies, but he strikes me as a a director kind of like George P. Kazmatos was to Stallone, right? The director that Denzel brings on when he wants somebody who's maybe not, who's going to give him the movie that he wants. And I never get that sense with Tony. I get the sense with Tony no Denzel you can you can give me better you can do I know you can do better because between this and deja vu and fucking man on fire and even taking a Pelham one two three like Tony got four great performances out of Denzel but I will argue this is the best one
0: yeah I uh I'm glad you brought that up though because I was gonna bring it up at some point that yeah this is a big deal because it's it's the first time they work together. It's the first of five times, which is uh, crazy. And they're two of, like my one of my favorite director actor combos ever at this point, honestly. Because um, I even think I I think he's great in every Tony movie. Uh, Unstoppable too. I think Denzel's great in that. Um, uh, just like I, I knew I was forgetting. One. That's okay. <laughs> I I had to sit here and as I, you were saying, how many movies? I was like, I just didn't count. I was like, oh yeah, it was five movies together. I'm
1: glad I forgot the one that you know you took the name of your fucking podcast for. That's good job.
0: <laughs> on the back for that. That's okay. That's that's payback for me blanking on Scott Atkins' name on the podcast last week with Liz. <laughs> 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 when I had a brain fart and I was like, the podcast on uh, what's the guy? Oh yeah, Scott Atkins. <laughs> <laughs> name of the day of podcast I, when you were talking about one shot i remember yeah.
1: i was like really matt I, know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was like mike's gonna kill me uh it's like oh or give me shit really not kill me but give me a lot of shit dessert it was it's funny because in the it was. i listened back to it it's like a two second like blank out it felt like minutes when it was happening <laughs> i was like what is his name like i was losing my mind um so now we're fair we're fair uh so <laughs> we're even now um So, yeah, I mean, there's something I feel like, especially a movie like Deja Vu, I think is a good example. I think Denzel really has to trust Tony doing a movie like that because it's very complicated. (laughs) It's a very complex movie. There's a lot of crazy shit Tony's doing with um, camera setups, and that story is very complicated. And I think I listed something recently where Denzel was even kind of talking about like that, you know, he maybe sometimes didn't know exactly what was going on, but Tony you know, would help him through or walk him through it. And, uh, you know, so I feel they had this great working relationship where, yeah, Tony just knew what to do with him and Denzel trusted Tony. And it's, yeah, it, someone brought that up about let, like Denzel has moved on to Anton Fuca being his guy, which kind of bums me out because I'm like, he probably still be making movies with Tony if Tony were still alive. And, uh, yeah, Fuka, you, I think you're exactly right. It's like the Stallone Cosmatos thing. It's like, it's like he works with Fuqua and like Fuqua probably just let him do whatever he wants, but I don't, you know, and I think I like the equalizer movies, uh, you know, and I can't think of, I think they did, um, uh, Magnificent seven together.
1: Well, they We're did da- training day. That was where they met.
0: That was That's the- right. That's right. Yeah. Uh,
1: and I actually, I know it won him as Oscar. Hopefully I don't, you know, cause you grief or get lit up on Twitter. <laughs> I'm not a fan of training day. I think Denzel Denzel is giving, an Al Pacino scent of a woman performance in training day. Uh, giving his yeah. performance that's calculated to win an Oscar. Right. Um, I mean, frankly, Ethan Hawke is the better performer in that. Right. Um, and yeah, I like the equalizer movies and I actually
0: really love
1: Magnificent seven.
0: I've only seen it once, but yeah, I really liked it. So for the most part, I like their collaborations. You know, it's, but I don't know. You're right. I think there's just something that's there's an element that's missing when it's not him and Tony. Um, yeah,
1: is any one of those performances as good as either Hunter in this or Creasy in Man on Fire? Fucking no. I submit to you,
0: <laughs> no. And I, man, I again, we're talking to head, and I've talked about Man on Fire so many times because I love Man on Fire. It's a favorite Tony Scott movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may be, man, it's, it's, he said so many. I say Mike, my favorite Denzel, but he's had a lot of good performances. I just watched uh, American Gangster today, which is a Ridley Scott movie with Denzel and, um, uh, oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Russell Crowe? Thank you, thank you. Um, Russell Crowe, who I think, it's funny, I think Russell Crowe is to Ridley Scott as Denzel is to Tony Scott. And they're paired up in that movie. And Denzel's great in American Gangster. And it's like, Jesus Christ, when is he not good? You know, I watched the little things earlier this year, which I thought was a terrible movie. And Denzel's kind of sleepwalking, but he's still not bad.
1: <laughs> like, well, I mean, Denzel does manage to make your dicks as hard as Chinese arithmetic, not <laughs> completely unbearable. Right. Like, like, I guess I'm not sure fucking Lawrence Olivier could pull off your dicks <laughs> as hard as Chinese arithmetic.
0: I'd <laughs> love to see it though. would love to see that scene play out with Lawrence Olivier. <laughs>
1: Your dick is hard as uh, I don't even know what I, I'm not doing a Lawrence. Olivia. Uh,
0: <laughs> Let's just move on. It's okay. Me. I, I will, I will defend. I, I don't need to say he won the Oscar. I do still like Denzel in training day. I, I laugh though. Cause I totally see your point about being like his Pacino central woman performance, but I, I feel like, you know, that's what they wanted. That's the performance. He's this big guy who's very confident and, you know, just, full of piss and vinegar and he just thinks he's the fucking king of the world and owns this whole area and like Denzel like you can't he's captivating even if it's like you can't take your eyes off him, which that's a that's through most of his movies in this too he's so magnetic that's why when he leads a mutiny I'm like yeah I believe guys on the ship would follow him into a mutiny because it's like that's a guy you follow you know
1: <laughs> well and that goes back again to my point of him being such a tremendous physical actor too yeah uh, You know, I I remember I'm not trying to I'm not trying to uh, go completely off the rails here. Shout out to uh, uh, and we were talking about this before. Shout out to our good friend Mark Warner, who has a tendency (laughs) to do that. We love you, Mark. Um, But uh, but, uh, you know, one and I don't even think the movie's all that great. And it certainly hasn't uh, aged well But Edward Norton's performance in American History X, I remember when I saw that when it came out, it was one of the most staggering physical performances because the way Norton acts with every muscle in his body in that movie and the way he physically changes throughout it is something that I will just always admire and Denzel's the same way every every inch of his body is in complete concert with what he's trying to do. And not all actors can do that. You know, some actors are, are very good when they talk, but they're not necessarily that impressive uh, just standing there. You put Denzel on a stage with a hundred people and have them just do whatever, look at their phone, play on Twitter. Your eyes are going to go to Denzel the way he, Moves, everything about him is magnetic and yeah this movie's one of them one of my favorite scenes in this this is a perfect example of it is right at the very end when they're you know Hackman gives him <clears throat> you know he's Fossler you've got three minutes and then he looks at Hunter and goes you've got three minutes and he clicks the stopwatch the way Denzel like lifts his arm up to look at his watch, is such a fucking flex because he doesn't just like look down at his watch. He makes sure to bring his arm up right in front of Ramsey to be like, yeah, bitch, I'm checking my own watch because I don't trust you to give me an accurate time count. And, and, and just the non plus look on Denzel's face. Like he knows he's going to be right. Uh, Now he's probably, Fronting, like because he can't possibly actually know whether he's going to be right but he's damn sure not going to let Ramsey see a moment of weakness and he doesn't say a single word when he does that but it is one of the most it is one of the things when I saw this movie in 1995 like I'm not going to lie Matt I actually when I check the time on my watch I still if somebody asks me what time it is I will still kind of try and mimic that movement that's how <laughs> I thought Denzel was in Crimson Tide when I first saw it. Um, and That that is God-given talent. That is, you can't teach that shit. That is something that he was just born with. It's an innate sense of timing and delivery and it's, it's beautiful. Uh, and this was the movie, I will say, you know, I had seen Glory. I had seen a bunch of the other movies that Denzel had done but this was the one where i was like yeah i'm in the bag for this guy for the rest of my life there's just no matter what he could go completely off the rails he could end up making roger corman movies and i will still be like yeah but he was in crimson tide
0: like <laughs> he's got a pass for life yeah it's i understand that's i i feel like i'm that way that's why i watch the little things because i had no interest but i was like well it's denzel let's see like, how bad could it be <laughs> You know, because you're gonna have something to latch onto. I think if he's in the movie, you know what I mean. Like no matter how bad the rest of the movie is, if he's there, it's like, okay, Denzel will get me through part of this at least. You know?
1: Yeah, Denzel and Dicks as hard as Chinese are. Right.
0: <laughs> in fairness, I I think I think we did learn
1: that Denzel's kryptonite is a two part mix of Jared Leto and Rami Malek. I <laughs> it's tough I to overcome. That's a tough that's combo. The- Things taught us is that a combination of Jared Leto and Rami Malik can uh, can neutralize uh, Denzel's uh, raw charisma. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God. That, oh, man, that movie. Uh, it's like, it's, but, but, uh, yeah, here, here, he's got so many great people to play off of because we talked about Hackman and Denzel a lot. Um, but this cast is again, I, every time I've a broken record, but Tony Scott's movies are so well casted from top to bottom. It's insane. Like I don't know how he did this. Um, The smallest parts are is Ryan Felipe pops up his first movie. um uh My god, James Camelfini comes back from true romance. He manages to like stand out in this crowded field. Um, you know, every, all these guys are, you know, I think some degree recognizable faces. Um, yeah.
1: Every, literally every role in this is somebody you have seen before. And shout out to our, our friends at F this movie. I'm going to butcher their ongoing joke, but it's even a got the Danny Nucci. Hey, <laughs> the Nucci. Uh, and, and in my favorite Danny Nucci performance, because he's awesome in this. And especially his bit where uh, he tells the one guy, he's like, because the torpedo didn't, because we need to be a thousand, a thousand, whatever it is, meters out for the torpedo storm. Jesus Christ, who'd you fuck to get on this (laughs) shit? Oh, my God. I love that. He's so good
0: at this. Yeah, I, it's funny you brought that up. The, the after this movie, Danny Nucci thing. It's, when I found out it was Danny Nucci, I, I was like laughing because I'm like, oh, it's Danny Nucci. <laughs> They're Italian, over the top Italian accent. Like it's a Danny Nucci, uh, and he's but he is really great in this. He's like, he's got a pivotal part, and he does a great job with it. Um. It's crazy. I'm just like looking at this cast again. I'm like, oh, Viggo Mortensen's there just in yeah, the
1: fucking king. Aragorn <laughs> is like just hanging out smoking cigarettes for like 90% of this movie. And he still manages to be amazing. Although I will say my wife, my wife did not recognize him. And she is of the opinion that he is much better with long hair and facial hair. And she hates long hair and facial hair. But she's like, yeah, no. Aragorn has to have long hair and facial <laughs>
0: He pulls it off. It is weird to see him, I feel like, with a military haircut and no beard, but it's uh, the eyes are recognizable. But he, I think he pulls off the Aragorn look, he's got to roll with that most of the time. <laughs> I agree. Um, it's I'm sorry, go ahead. I don't, I, I didn't really have a thought. Go ahead, you saved me there because I was like, I don't know what I was gonna say. <laughs> Can we go back to Gandolfini? Because what a fuck stick
1: Gandolfini is in this yeah. movie. I fucking hate Gandolfini in this movie. He is, and this is not, this is not a comment on his performance, but of all the people, he's the only one in the entire movie where it's like, oh no, you fucking suck. Like right. there's no gray with you. You're like, when he tells Vigo, you're a piece of shit. And, and he's just, he's just, you can just tell he's just itching to shoot somebody throughout mm-hmm. this entire movie. Um, It's a, it's a, Gandolfini's doing exactly what he's being asked to do. So again, this is this is a compliment on his acting. But my god, every time I want to watch, every time I watch this movie, I want to punch that motherfucker <laughs> right in the throat. He's, like, a,
0: real I, yeah, he's they, a real piece of shit. Yeah, he's a real piece of shit. They it. set him up as a piece of shit early on on the bus uh, when he tells that uh, one guy gets on. He asks him like a movie trivia question. Totally a a Tarantino punch up, I'm sure Uh, where and then he makes him do 100 push ups. He's he's I have not been in the military personally, uh, but I it's funny. I this is a movie about Navy guys on a Navy sub. I live 20 minutes from Norfolk Naval Base, which is the largest naval base in the world. Um, So I know a little bit about the Navy and I've had plenty of friends who've been in the military. There's always a guy or at least one guy. There's usually multiple guys who are like just waiting to shit on somebody or use their power to just you know belittle someone like they get on this power trip and like he's just one of those fucking bullies that gets in and just you know can't wait to push people around and you see right, that like,
1: he's the <laughs> high school football player that that then graduated and joined the military and never grew out of it like right <laughs> such a fuckstick. stick uh <laughs> You know, it, it, that's the one thing is like so Eric Bruscotter's character is the one that gets his nose smashed because he's he's you know, he's a fan of the Mobius Silver Surfer, another Tarantino punch up. Oh yeah. But <laughs> I I'm the I was like, no, like bust Gandolfini's nose. Fuck that guy. Right.
0: Like, <laughs> that's a guy who wants to get punched. I mean, yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> like
1: well, it, well, and he plays it so well because again, Gandolfini had may he rest in peace, such an expressive face. There's a scene mm-hmm. towards end where they've all got guns drawn at each other and everybody looks scared except Gandolfini and he's pointing his gun and he's got this just this smug look on his face like he's like I just want to start shooting people and every time I see it I honestly want to punch my tv screen Um, (laughs) he makes me so angry in this movie um which again is a testament to him that that that's he's doing great work here because i've watched tony soprano and i don't want to punch my tv screen so he's really going all in on this one right
0: yeah (laughs) apparently a very lovable guy in real life but can play some real shitty people you know real well so it's it's so funny yeah he's like the only guy you're like well that guy's clearly a piece of shit everybody else is gray area um And since we kind of walked into it a couple of times there, I know you kind of said, like, you know, the whole Tarantino story. I'm not sure if everybody does. I feel like everyone knows every Tarantino story, but, you know, who knows? Um, I've got to tell the story because I kind of love the story (laughs) because I like Tarantino a lot. Um, Dare say I love the guy. He's one of the reasons I got into movies. But he definitely has always had a bit of a ego about him. Like, I'm a cool guy. You know, I'm so cool. And so if people don't know, he gets brought on, you know, cause he wrote true romance, Tony Scott and him were friends at that point. They got along really well. And Tony brings him on to punch up the script kind of with some, cause it's all a lot of technical jargon and military talk. And they want a little bit, you know, the pop culture stuff. That's where the movie thing comes from. The silver surfer thing. I'm sure the star Trek thing at the end came from him, and all that stuff. His punch was very obvious. So, but he gets on the set and Denzel had a problem with, uh you know tarantino throwing the n-word into his scripts and his movies so he talks to him about it but he doesn't do it privately <laughs> he he confronts tarantino on the set and tarantino's like hey man can we like take this like behind the scenes or you know some private then tells like no i'm not having that he's like i'm gonna talk to you right here about this and dresses him down and kind of embarrasses him in front of the whole crew and uh and, you know, just kind of, you know, just kind of took him to task for it. And apparently Denzel like felt bad and called him like, I think it took like five or six years, but he called him and apologized and said, Hey, sorry, I embarrassed you on that criminal title those years ago. But, um, that story just always kind of, I always found it fascinating, honestly.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and that's the thing is I I've had some people tell me, well, one thing I learned when I rewatched this and was tweeting about it is that there's people that don't like Crimson Tide, which- I saw that, I was shocked.
0: I was shocked yeah, to hear that.
1: Well, as I said, look, I am pro not liking stuff. I am not one of those people that like, is just like, let people enjoy things. You, you can not like whatever you want to not like, but this vexes me, Matt. I am, <laughs> I am, I am, uh, but- <clears throat> I've had some people say, I think the Tarantino stuff sticks out like a sore thumb. And I just don't uh, because, you know, the the silver surfer stuff, like, look, here's the reality. I've never been in the military as well, but I know plenty of soldiers, uh, some who are very good friends. um, And they talk about and argue about stupid shit like the silver surfer. Uh, but the one that I loved the most and, and was a Tarantino punch-up was, um, unfortunately, not a great guy, it turns out, but Lilo Brancato's character, Vosler, Oh, uh-huh. the, the whole Denzel Washington, you know, Denzel telling him you watch Star Trek, you're Scotty. I need you, and and the way he's like, Scotty, this is Captain Kirk. I need warp speed, and you know, and Vossler makes the uh the radio come to life. Like that shit was so perfect in terms of Tarrant, you know, the script already having it, but then Tarantino adding that little bit of sort of pop culture reference, uh to Give us something to, to dial into Because who doesn't understand Scotty, I need, I need more speed I need warps you know? <laughs> And, and it's, it comes at such A perfect point where you're like Yeah, Scotty, you did it Like it's so good uh, This is again, this goes back To our original point Everything in this movie Came together In the best Possible way like if any one of these aspects doesn't work as well as it does, we're probably not flipping shit about this movie right now. But everything comes together in the most perfect way possible to get what I think is one of the best blockbusters ever made.
0: Uh, Yes, I agree with you 100% on that. It's it's crazy how good this is. Like, I, it gets better time I watch it. Like, how, how does that happen? And uh, it's funny, someone's, I think I saw the comment where someone said that it, the Tarantino stuff sticks out like a sore thumb. I think it sticks out, but I don't think it sticks out like a sore thumb. I think it just, but we know, if you're watching this with somebody who doesn't know, you know, that Tarantino did dialogue on this, so they're going to be like, oh, Tarantino wrote that. It doesn't bother me. And I think it adds, all those parts are memorable, I feel like. They all lead to something. Um, They all serve a purpose, you know, like the Star Trek thing's great too, because the whole thing it kind of has a Star Trek vibe. Anyway, we, we talked about the action where it's like, you know, you're on a ship, you've got to act like you're falling over. <laughs> you know. It, it all kind of serves the, the purpose. I mean, so I, I like that stuff. I think it only everything just enriches the movie to me and everything in this. Like, I don't think anything detracts from the quality of the movie. Like we saw the editing, the score, the acting the dialogue. I mean, I think everything just makes it a better movie. And I don't think any like I can't. I, I, I try to come on here and try to be fair and, you know, maybe find some, some negatives. I, I'm having a hard time for Crimson Tide. I was like, I'm going to have hardly anything negative to say, honestly. I just think it's so well constructed from every, from every part, you know, it's just, it's crazy to me. I can't, I just can't get over it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, am with you. I, um, you know, as somebody who saw it in the theater, I, when I saw it, I had, and I was already a big Tarantino fan but i had no idea he did punch-ups on this when i saw it and and so it didn't i think it sticks out if you're like oh i know tarantino did punch-ups on it and so you're looking for it but i could also argue i know robert town did punch-ups on it and i can see those as well okay what does that matter (laughs) I don't give a shit. The movie, still everything about it, still works. And you know, and one of the other things we didn't talk about is how beautiful this, like the lighting and the way Tony and and Wolsey use the 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 ambient light from the monitors and everything to give it this incredible depth and color. I mean, this is just a staggeringly beautiful movie to watch. Like. I, I, Matt, you know I love Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. I just watched Shang Chi a couple of weeks ago. I would have killed for Shang Chi, and I mispronounced it the first time. For Shang Chi to have one tenth as much like visual interest as this movie does, this is there's not a single frame of this movie that doesn't look gorgeous on every front
0: yeah a movie that if you're in a submarine went like it's one location it's very dark this could be very flat very quickly uh, and but it's like all i love how he's just using like the light from these screens like it's red and green on people's faces and everybody's sweaty you know (laughs) it's just like it it does look amazing like it's like it's crazy it shouldn't look this good yeah it's like you know it's
1: like how did this happen (laughs) where ramsey is going to shoot webs and then he realizes he can't. And so he's going to shoot Scott Grimes like the, the way it's all red. And so what you're seeing is just, you're seeing Scott Grimes and you're getting these deep shadows as Ramsey's sticking the gun to him, but you're seeing the sweat on his face and he's trying to put on a brave face, but you can tell he's literally pissing himself. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about, oh i wish movies could look like back to the future or whatever spielberg movie no man i wish movies could look like fucking crimson tide <laughs> like that is that is what i will hold out as i wish movies could look like now because it is it is so stunningly gorgeous uh to to look at um and that's where i say i i this is where i say i still i think it's tony's best movie because he He is playing in that mainstream sandbox. Like Man on Fire was a 20th Century Fox movie and had a big budget, but come on, you can watch Man on Fire and go, that's not a mainstream movie. Domino is not a mainstream movie. Uh, This is, he's playing wholly in that Disney. He's got that Touchstone money. He's got that Simpson-Bruckheimer money. And he's playing in that mainstream blockbuster sandbox and he is just killing it, uh, with, with how he's making this entire movie look.
0: Yeah. I mean, like I just saw somebody say the other day and, uh, that there might be nobody who was better at directing the modern blockbuster than Tony Scott. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'll, you can make a case for a few people, I'm sure. But it's like when you watch like Crimson Tide, you're like, God damn, they might be onto something. <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's because it, it's it's a blockbuster that has that looks good. It has depth to it. It's got great performances. Like, I think blockbuster, the, the term is so negative, you know, or things are so when they're blockbuster. It's so things are so hollow. But it's like this movie is so uh like vibrant and uh full of so much you know so much great stuff that you know it's it's like what the fuck happened to movies <laughs> you know over the past like 25 years since crimson tide came out and how do i get more things like crimson tide i'm with you i want more things to look like yeah. crimson tide
1: <laughs> yeah literally the only other act or the only other director that i personally would throw up above that is sam raimi uh but oh, they're yeah. so similar in terms of uh their idiosyncrasies that you know you could kind of it's six of one half dozen of the other right like they're Mm -hmm. they they they're just so creative or i should say in tony's case was just so creative um can i tell you my favorite story about crimson tide
0: oh yes please yeah
1: (laughs) oh my favorite story about this movie is that, uh, based on the plot, you know this is a topical thing with people talking about Marvel's relationship with the military. The military <laughs> was like, "Yeah, the fuck, we're gonna support you on a movie about a mutiny on an American nuclear submarine, right?" Yeah, right. you're not getting of our shit, <laughs> and so Tony pays people to tip him off (laughs) when the Alabama is going to ship out and he gets a tip off and he gets a helicopter and a camera crew to record the Alabama setting sail. And it's not illegal. The Navy was pissed as hell, but it's not illegal because it was on public display. Uh, and so the whole opening of the Alabama going out to sea Tony like surreptitiously filmed that and the Alabama when they saw him decided to descend and go underwater which he didn't want he had already planned for like cgi for that he just wanted to get it at sea and so he got an even better shot because the name <laughs> freaked the fuck out like what a just genius madman that story is so amazing to me that he's just like yeah let's just you know Pay somebody a hundred bucks to let us know when they ship out. I'll have a camera crew and a helicopter ready to go, and I'll just follow along with the submarine filming it. And then when they get pissed off and go down <laughs> underwater, boom, there's one of my like that's the scene where we get the full, like, do you know, oh my the god, yeah, like, Hans that's... Zimmer score, <laughs> and it's all because the navy wouldn't work with him. like <laughs> I love that shit that's amazing
0: that i'm so glad you told that story because i had that story in my notes i think you just told it better than i could because i was i love that story though that is such a good like this is tony scott type story this is like what it's a, it's him just like i gotta get this get the shot he's like an adventurous guy he's like fuck it let's just let's just go out there on boats and I'll have the helicopter we will steal this footage. He's like radio people back. Like I think back when the, the sub was taking off and they're like, Oh, it's coming out. So they're, they're doing all this guerrilla filmmaking, basically, you know, usually hear about this kind of stuff happening like, like in New York city when they want to like steal shots on the streets, you know, they don't have permits. You know, I've never heard anyone doing it for a, a Navy submarine, you know, <laughs> it's like, let's, let's go out and uh, steal this footage. I love yet. Yeah, like the capper to that story of of the Navy being like, you know pissed off at him and then they just they're like fuck it and we just take the sub down and tony's like oh i didn't think i was going to get the sub going in the water this is great like this is this is bonus right
1: <laughs> it, it's it's just it's amazing it's it's one of my favorite hollywood just ever <laughs> hollywood stories um and it just so enriches the movie because again like it's not guerrilla filmmaking like, on one hand, you're right. It totally is. But it's not because that shot, those scenes are beautiful. So he brought, like, a full camera crew, right? Like, he wasn't just, like, using a Sony cam. Right, right. <laughs> it's
0: like, like... Yeah, I only meant that in terms of, like, we're stealing these shots without permission. No, you no. Know.
1: I, you know, no, I know. But yeah. I, it's
0: just... <laughs> It's, huh. it's guerrilla filmmaking on a blockbuster budget, basically.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> guerrilla filmmaking on a blockbuster budget. With,
0: like, four cameras and a helicopter and, you know, because um, yeah, he was ready. Like, they had the stuff on this boat set up and he had the helicopter and he had people all over the place. Um, yeah, that shot looks gorgeous. That's what I was thinking. We said the movie looks amazing. Like, the shot with the sub submerging and the score kicks in, like, just... Just oh, oh man, it's so cool.
1: <laughs> it's, well, like, and it's like the perfect, the light is perfect, the like, light's perfect, like the yeah, perfect time of day and stuff. I just, I love, you know, Disney gets a lot of shit as and rightfully they should, but man, there was a time when Disney was like, I really cannot describe how much I miss Touchstone. Like, yeah. there was a time when Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures were like they were must-sees for me most of the time because they gave Tony the money to rent this helicopter and do this fucking like surreptitious filming of a U.S. naval sub. (laughs) You know, like I think most, even though it's not illegal, I think most studios would be like, yeah, no, you can't do that. And at that point, Disney is like, or whoever, you know, and maybe it was because, and part of that was probably because Don and Jerry, You know, they were Mm -hmm. able to shield Tony and, and let him do this stuff because they were, say what you will about Simpson and Bruckheimer, but they were pretty terrific bullet catchers for their directors. They, you look at any Simpson Bruckheimer movie and there is such a unique style to those movies that. It was because they they had the clout. They could catch the bullets. They'll be like, look, if Michael Eisner is going to yell at somebody, and, and realistically, it was going to be Bruckheimer. Bruckheimer would be like, if Eisner's going to yell at somebody, let him yell at me. You know, right. Tony, you get your shot. Because <laughs> if you get your shot, I know we're going to make a movie that's going to make us a lot of money. So I'll take the heat now for you to be able to show for you to be able to give me this shot that I can show Eisner and go, really, you're pissed off about this shot. Really? (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, yeah, actually, I I don't want to completely change topics, but can we talk about Simpson and Bruckheimer for a sec?
0: I was actually just thinking about kind of leaning into them a little bit because, um i two things i want to say really quick and then i'll let you get to your point um that what a hell of a double punch for them in 95 with this and bad boys um after like you said just kind of a disaster a few years i didn't know that they were the guys behind the ref with uh kevin spacey and um the christmas my movie christmas movie of and all they, time they were they, they screwed over Brookhaven. They since they put me up that movie out in march of 94 why do you put a Christmas movie out in March? <laughs> so they're they're coming off that kind of shit, and then '95 they get this amazing double punch of Bad Boys and Cryptid Tide. And I wanted to mention the one, and I'll let you sorry, say your part. But th- that um, this is the last time that Tony and Don Simpson worked together because sadly Don Simpson passed away in '96, I believe, early '96. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you're actually missing one too. It was a triple punch because the highest grossing movie that they put out that year was in fact actually Dangerous Minds.
0: Uh, oh, I thought that was 94 for some reason. Okay. No, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that was 95. That was that so Bad Boys came out in I want to say March or April. Crimson Tide came out in June and then Dangerous Minds came out in August and uh yeah, that's the thing. So here's the thing with Simpson and Bruckheimer. You know, everybody knows, and you've had to talk about them because you can't really talk about Tony Scott without talking about Simpson Bruckheimer. Yeah. Right. Like, um, they hit it big with Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, then Top Gun, which is where they team up with Tony, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and then Days of Thunder, which, you know, you talked about in your episode, Days of Thunder made money but it did not make as much money as it was supposed to. And the people that really took the heat for that were Don and Jerry. Um, And so they were kind of, like I said, persona non grata. And part of the problem with that is throughout their entire relationship, the whole point of their relationship was the idea was Don was the high concept guy.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: He came up with the concepts and then Jerry made everything happen. Uh, But Don also had a drug habit that would have killed Godzilla. Uh, And so they kind of fell out because again, it's the eighties it's Hollywood Coke, all these drugs are everywhere. So yeah. So for three years, they didn't produce a movie. Um, And then the ref, was supposed to be their big comeback the ref is my favorite christmas movie of well maybe not my favorite but in my top three um i used to watch it every christmas eve i haven't watched it for a while because the whole spaciness of it um but it was a massive failure and they were literally on the way out and they had tried to develop bad boys as a Dana Carvey John Lovett's vehicle.
0: <laughs> oh my God. I've never uh, heard that before. <laughs> wow. It's a very different movie. Uh- <laughs> yeah.
1: And, but when they kind of hooked up with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, that kind of started it. And then they were able to do they the Crimson Tide script came in and they were able to get Hackman and Denzel and Tony back. And, uh, and yeah, 1995 literally changed the trajectory of their career uh because they had three absolute bangers in one year unfortunately as all of that was happening don simpson is just falling apart you know he had a guy his doctor who was supposed to be helping him with his addiction died in his guest house by overdosing Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and his idea for helping Simpson with his addiction was to give him more drugs, oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, then, uh, 95, they terminate their partnership. Jerry's like, I can't do this anymore. They're working on the rock. They're producing the rock. He's like, this is going to be our last movie. Um, <clears throat> but Simpson actually dies before the rock even comes out. Um, he was one of the brightest stars in Hollywood, but also just a man of demons. And, uh, and you can't kind of talk about these movies without talking about them. And, and Crimson Tide, in my opinion, is their It's their masterpiece. It's, it's, it's everything Simpson and Bruckheimer did well, uh, with none of the stuff that they did badly, uh, and they would, you know, obviously because Simpson died, they would never achieve those heights again. I mean, Bruckheimer obviously has had an incredibly successful career. Shit, right. yeah. The CSI alone is enough for him to, you know, never, like the guy owns the Seattle Kraken. Like, like you know, Jerry Bruckheimer's doing just fine. Yeah, but,
0: yeah, he's uh, had projects that like one of those projects could probably help me retire for the rest of my life, you know, so. Yeah, but um, there's
1: a book, that it's out of print but you can find used copies on Amazon it's called high concept uh don simpson and the hollywood culture of excess it is a tremendous read it's a bit gossipy but there's really no way you can write about don simpson's life without being gossipy because the man was the living embodiment of gossip like every cliche about hollywood producers don right. lived um but imagine your producers and in one year you put out fucking bad boys crimson tide and dangerous minds like that that to me is something that is so worth pointing out mm-hmm. because what a fucking year <laughs> like, like,
0: yeah i mean that's amazing and three very different movies
1: very different movies. you know yeah. bad boys is everything that that Bruckheimer would become right it's Mm -hmm. it's it's Michael Bay it's now the this is the new era and then you get Tony who does transition to the new era but also sort of represents this old era giving the best possible version of this old era movie that he could make and then you get Dangerous Minds which is quite frankly I like it but it's not actually that good of a movie (laughs) Uh
0: uh-huh
1: but it's it's also their movie where they have their finger on the pulse,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know Michelle Pfeiffer goes to the inner city school, and and that opens up the world for things like Hardball, or or you know how many schools like like Dangerous Minds is White Savior the movie, <laughs> but it also yeah. has, it also has Coolio's Gangsta's
0: Paradise, right? That song I feel like. <laughs> Like that movie, I think that song sends the movie to another stratosphere of popularity because that song was huge. Like I was pretty young. I'm not trying to rub this in. I swear that uh, I was so so young that like I remember that movie being like a real like talked about movie, and that song was huge. That song was like inescapable in '95 and probably into '96. Like. Um, so, yeah, they really had their finger on something. And I mean, talk about, you know, you did a good job when you're parody because I think uh John Lovitz made like that high school high movie a couple years later. You know, yep, right,
1: Weird Al, Weird Al did Amish Paradise Amish Paradise. I mean, Paradise. Yeah. Made it when Weird Al parodies you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but on top of that, you know, you look at something like um the blind side that Sandra Bullock won her Oscar for, you know, that's really just dangerous minds kind of redux, you know, like, yeah. like it's all like. Dangerous Minds set a template for unbelievably gorgeous actress dresses down and hangs out with minorities to win an Oscar, which is a terrible precedent. But nonetheless, we cannot argue like, here's the thing with Dangerous Minds, $23 million budget, (laughs) (laughs) $179.5 million
0: box office. Oh, that's a ninety-five dollars. I don't know what that even equates to. <laughs>
1: that's some fucking Blair Witch money, You're
0: talking right there in terms of like profit margin, right?
1: You know, Amazing, yeah.
0: so,
1: Like, this is one of the other things that I was so excited to talk about when when we we're talking about Crimson Tide because this year for Simpson and Bruckheimer is so unbelievably um just fascinating in Hollywood history. Um, but I think it's pretty clear. 25 years later that crimson tide as much as i love bad boys and as much as i even kind of like dangerous minds crimson tide stands head and shoulders above the other two movies um i love bad boys you will never convince me that bad boys is a better movie than crimson tide like (laughs) it's just not gonna happen
0: yeah i don't know who would argue that but i'd like to hear that argument <laughs> i'm sure somebody would i i love bad boys as well i love bad boys too i love bad boys for life i i'm in for the whole bad boys trilogy honestly but um yeah criminal ties are better movie than bad boys i think 100 <laughs> percent.
1: yeah i it just it just it and again it feels like this is an r-rated major budget hollywood blockbuster for adults Mm -hmm. and so it just feels like the kind of movie that honestly we're never gonna get again uh you know at, at the night we're recording this there was this aaron stewart on who wrote mandy had tweeted this thing about this netflix blockbuster um called uh quadrant nexus starring mark Wahlberg and vin diesel and Joking about how nobody remembers that this movie came out and a bunch of us kind of jumped on this. I don't know if you saw this today. I Matt. did
0: actually just see this before we started recording. So I'm, yeah. I'm with you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I can
0: follow. Yeah, You know, and I feel like.
1: That's the thing is we get now these four quadrant. Everybody's trying to hit these four quadrant blockbusters now. And. Crimson Tide wasn't interested in hitting a four-quarter blockbuster. This is not a movie made for kids. This is not a movie made for teenagers. Like, the target audience for this was adults. And because of that, Tony got to make a Tony movie. He still got to be Tony Scott. And, you know, everybody's talking about, bitching about how Ridley has opened his mouth because he's a crazy old man this week. And, (laughs) I would love to know Tony's thoughts on what modern blockbuster cinema looks like because, um, Ridley's great. Ridley's amazing. Ridley's made tremendous movies, but Ridley's always been Ridley. Mm-hmm. Tony has always been able to be Tony, but also, I'm going to play in your sandbox. Ridley's always struck me as the director who's like, no, you're going to bring the sandbox to me. And Tony's always been the director who's like, I'm going to go play in your sandbox, but I'm going to make my castle. And I don't think he ever does that better than he does in Crimson Tide. Disney gives it, he gets that sweet-ass Disney money and makes a tremendously idiosyncratic stagey play like action movie blockbuster who the fuck else could pull that off
0: i can't think of any, i was wondering i can't think of anybody because it's this it's this tightrope walk between he's making this very exciting it, like i said earlier it's like a dramatic thriller that has the it feels like an action movie even though there's not a lot of action it's this amazing like magic trick he pulls off um i don't know how he did it and two things you brought up that i mean they're kind of off topic was a tie, but I, we haven't really talked about this that much of like Tony not being around for the past almost 10 years now. Um, and what I, I'm so curious, what he would think of this landscape that we're in and what he would have been doing? Because I, I like Rid, Ridley's 83 and is still working. I, I know like everything I read about Tony Scott, the guy had a motor that didn't stop for anything. So I'm sure he'd be right there <laughs> and he's a little younger than Ridley too. So he'd be right there still trying to make movies. I'm so curious what he would be making, you know, like, um and kind of compare the two it's funny because i like ridley is a guy who's who's played in every single genre i'm pretty sure at this point like i don't think he's i don't think it's a genre he hasn't touched you know um and like i can never really pin down ridley scott's style or what ridley scott's about i feel like i've got like (laughs) what tony's about and i can tell like tony Scott's style you know tony scott's style like evolved a lot over the years um but like he feels like he has more of a artistic identity ridley scott's like a chameleon i feel like he just is kind of he's made a lot of great movies, but he's always doing something different. And like, I could, if I didn't know any better, there's a lot of movies where I couldn't tell you really Scott directed that, you know, but, um, so I just threw a lot of things at the wall. There. <laughs> I, apologize. I just realized I said like a, four things to jump onto there, but, um, but basically, uh, yeah, I just, I miss Tony a lot. I'm very curious. I'll start there. What he would have been doing in the past 10 years. I have no clue. Would he make him like straight to Netflix action movies? You know, what would he be up to?
1: Well, what's interesting again? Don't want to jump ahead, but I feel like he was starting to come back towards the more Crimson Tide esque movies with smaller budgets because you know you look at obviously the height of his Tony Nine cameras was Domino, yeah, right? Absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. But then he does Taking a Pelman One Two Three, which is actually a relatively straightforward movie. And I think, I mean, Unstoppable's pretty much Crimson Tide Redux, you know, it's a very traditional sort of blockbuster, but it's working on a much smaller budget than what he had to work with on Crimson Tide. So it might be, he might be doing Netflix movies, or he might even have decided to sort of transition to maybe even almost like, and I yeah, anybody that knows me knows I don't mean this as an insult, like direct to video kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that maybe it would have been more the Netflix thing. It would have been more the like, he's making his version of Six Underground. You yeah. know, yeah. Netflix is giving him $150 million and telling him to go bug nuts. <laughs> uh, but it, it is hard. It is hard to know because, again, he was so. I, I I don't want to jump ahead, but I'm such a fan of Unstoppable. And that was one of the things that was such a tragedy for me is I really wanted to see where he went after Unstoppable because mm-hmm. he's working with Chris Pine. He, you know, he's transitioning kind of to maybe a newer generation of actors. And I would have just loved to have seen where he went from that uh because i i just think i think that movie's tremendous um and uh but unfortunately we'll never get to know all we can do is speculate
0: yeah it's interesting you you bring up because like his career kind of goes on this kind of upward curve you want to talk about how the style escalates like the style the crazy nine camera all these touches he throws in, uh, random subtitles, all these <laughs> crazy little experimental things he does. It definitely, the curve kind of starts probably around like enemy of the state. And it's like, a, it's like a curve going up. It peaks at Domino and it starts to go down a little bit. Deja vu is still pretty wild and experimental, but he definitely, I guess the term will be mellowed out a little bit. <laughs> he kind of, he kind of chills out on like all the crazy experimental stuff he was doing around Man on Fire and Domino and like, taking a 2 one, two, three and unstoppable more, or like more straightforward, like you said. Um, so I really, yeah, I, that's, it kills me too. Like, it just, I'm so curious what he would have done after that. I did read, the only thing I read that he was kind of working on was he was going to work on Top Gun 2 with Tom Cruise. Like they were, they were actually location scouting um, for Top Gun 2 uh, around the time, you know, that he passed away. So um, that would have been interesting because I'm like, how would they, how would he have updated Top Gun 2? We know uh, Top Gun Maverick's happening at some point, I think, in 2022, finally. Um, but I'm, I'm curious now what his top end, two would have looked like. But, um, yeah, it's just, uh, this is the part that kills him doing a show. And I think I have a talking about because it really makes me sad. It's like, oh, all the Tony Scott projects we didn't get and all the things he would have done um, is where he would have gone. It would have been so interesting.
1: Well, and I almost wonder if he would have transitioned to TV because, you know, he did, he was the EP on one of my favorite TV shows of all time, which is Numbers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Matt, if you've never seen Numbers, it's great because the show totally looks like a Tony Scott show. Um, And so I do almost wonder if maybe he instead would have transitioned to doing television and, and maybe we would have had Episodes of Game of Thrones directed by Tony Scott or the fucking Mandalorian. You know, Robert Rodriguez is doing the book of Boba Fett. Yeah, like yeah. Had a Star Wars TV show directed <laughs> by Tony Scott. And some people are going to roll their eyes at that and be like, "Ah," oh, but, but I'm like, no, this is a guy who played in the Disney sandbox. He knows how this shit works. Like a Star Wars Tony Scott TV series. Give me that. I give know, me yeah. that. <laughs> Don't stop, you know um yeah it, it's just it is hard to know and it's tough it is a thing you know and you have deftly avoided kind of talking about it throughout the series but um that's the thing I think that Crimson Tide brings out is because it is so good that you can't help but think is there did we miss another crimson tide as much as i love so many of the movies that he made after this um i will never love one as much as this one and i do wonder was there another crimson tide somewhere out there that we you know we will never get to see uh and that sucks um and it sucks again because obviously tony was dealing with some demons and uh you know, it's not like he died of cancer, um, right. or, or something, you know, he was dealing with some demons and that makes it an extra bummer because now you look back on his movies and there's shit you sort of see, and you're kind of like, uh, should we have maybe seen this coming? And that also adds an extra layer of poignancy to it. That is just a bummer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of, I think I'm saving up all the, uh, <laughs> the tony's the sad tony scott talk probably for the the last episode honestly or something so um it's it's probably why i avoided it but i mean it's just it's just a bummer and uh he you know it it's there's this i feel like people definitely didn't appreciate him or the movies he was making until after he was gone fully appreciate him they appreciate him but you know there's definitely been a uh uh revival i would say in the past few years especially i've noticed being on twitter that everyone's like oh i love tony scott you know it's like but but it felt like that wasn't because i think he was just like a working director that he was like he's around it's tony scott like um it's almost like really scott fell into this for a while where it's like yeah he just is consistently working um I mean, my God, we do this to Spielberg, I feel like, where Spielberg's a guy that just has consistently been working for so long, we almost take him for granted, in a way, you know, they take, these guys put these great movies, and people are like, oh, they put another great movie out, the, you know, it's like, it's like clockwork, you know, <laughs> it's like, people don't really, t- it's as it's happening, they don't, they don't take it for as good as it is, basically, um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know, I'll, I'll we'll talk more about, you know, the, kind of the end of his life at the very end, because I'm putting it off as long as I can. But, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. He, um, you know, he, he did, he was special. That we've, that's why I'm doing a whole series of his movies. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm just rambling, but, uh, <laughs> go ahead. You got anything? No, it's hard not to. I mean, I, I don't feel like I have too much
1: to add other than I, The only thing I will say, and and we don't need to dwell on it, but I will say, I don't think we quite gave George Dazunda enough credit for (laughs) Crimson Tide. But other than that, no, I don't, I mean, this is a very special movie to me. Um, It's obviously talking to you, a very special movie to you. And, uh, you know, everybody's got their favorite Tonys, and uh, and that's what's awesome. You know, I there are people that just absolutely adore True Romance. I really, really like True Romance, but I, I just there's something about this one for me. It, you know me, Matt. I love glossy Hollywood blockbuster shit. Like that's always <laughs> where I go to, and and that's the thing is when I see a glossy Hollywood blockbuster that is done with the perfection that this movie is, that's always going to be my go-to. And, and this is, I am honestly of the opinion, this is a perfect blockbuster. Uh, there are very few blockbusters that are, that I would rank better than this movie. And, um, so I just, I'm going to kind of wrap my stuff up by saying thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about this movie because it really means a lot
0: oh yeah absolutely no problem thank you for doing this i i'm so glad we finally got here because like you we we talked about it so far in advance and I it, it was what i was looking forward to because i want to talk to you and i want to talk about this movie uh and i can't like i said i i couldn't find anything negative to say i'm like this movie's perfect what the, you know what's like which i don't say about a lot of movies but um and I guess that we're talking about it too, I will just say this is a little bit ahead too. But like, I always say this is probably is his best movie. Man on Fire is my favorite. I, I think the thing that gives Man on Fire the edge for me, it's that emotional, you know, the whole emotional uh, arc with Denzel and Dakota Fanning. Because it just, it hits me so hard. Like, I just think it's, it's beautiful. And I think they're both so good um, in that movie. So I think that's the only thing that kind of puts it over the top is like, Crimson Tide's missing, missing that, um, that real emotional hook for me, but it's a perfect movie. You know what I mean? It's like the only reason Man on Fire is my favorite is because it has that extra little emotional kick that it, that it gives me. i will talk about way more when we get there in a, in a few episodes, but, um, well, and, and Man on Fire, like make no
1: mistake, Man on Fire is my second favorite,
0: Tony. Oh, okay. We're, we're
1: not, we, we,
0: uh, <laughs> we just flip-flopped our one and two. there. You go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, Oh, last thing to end on like a really, I think a lighter fun note. uh, You brought up Pacino earlier. Did you read that Pacino was one of the guys they wanted for uh, instead of Gene Hackman at first? Yeah, I did read that. And I, (laughs) I can't see it. Um, I can't either. I mean, there's something about, I could see him like yelling the lines, like, you know, really Pacino and it up. And I, I really love Al Pacino, but we all know the things he can do. He's very, uh, like central woman, like you said earlier, he gets very like, Yahua. Like it's like he, could, he could really a, get in.
1: There. You know, she's got a great ass. You yeah. Know? <laughs>
0: um, I mean, he could go all out, but I don't think he has the Gene Hackman has a he don't have he doesn't have to speak, and he has this very like stoic, uh, energy. This very um, you know, like he just has a presence about him. But I don't know a physical presence that I don't know if Pacino P- would need that for this role. I think, especially he's on like. don't know just the way that this is staged I feel like Pacino would look small next to Denzel I was you know maybe I'm overthinking this I don't know I just feel like no you're
1: right and and Hackman's the fucking goat I mean (laughs) like that's the thing is is like Hackman could do it all uh and and you know and so there's just But that's, again, that's another one of those ways everything in this movie goes right. I I read all the other, you know, Val Kilmer was supposed to be in it, and it's actually the one movie that he says he regrets turning down. I don't don't know who he's supposed to play, but if it was supposed to be Hunter, I love Val Kilmer, but I don't see, like, imagine this movie with Val Kilmer and Al Pacino. We're not talking about it 25 years later, right? Yeah. um. That's another one of those ways that just everything in this movie went right. This is a perfect storm of shit that needed to break. Right. And it broke. Right. And we got an all timer.
0: Yeah. Cause Pacino turned them down, I believe. And, and yeah, they wanted uh, Val Kilmer for the Hunter role, which I couldn't see. Um, Brad Pitt wanted to do the Hunter role when he thought Pacino was going to be Ramsey. And then he backed out when they couldn't get Pacino, which I couldn't again, love Brad Pitt. I, he doesn't have the same uh, presence. I mean, he—it's you know, there's something just missing that 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 he doesn't have that Denzel has in this kind of performance. I feel like that he—it's that leadership role. I feel like like I don't think of Brad Pitt as like a. Gravitas. He does. The gravitas. Not- thank you. Yeah. It's like, I don't see him as that leader part. And then they really wanted Warren Beatty, apparently. Like, they really, really wanted Warren Beatty desperately to play Ramsey. And I don't see that either, from what I know of Warren Beatty. But I mean, you know, I, um, great actor, but I don't see him doing that as well as Gene Hackman, for sure.
1: Yeah. No, there's, there's no way this movie. <laughs> the casting in this movie you know the 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 other movie i mean tony was great at casting but the one other movie that's a little bit you know and you're going to get to it in a couple of months where i think the casting is as on point it's the one movie that i think the castings as on point in this one is spy game uh those are the two where i think those movies are just perfectly cast every person like the actors were born to play the roles they're playing um but i just this is so perfectly cast i cannot imagine anybody else in these roles uh i just i don't think we're talking about this movie with the reverence and love that we are if anybody else is in these roles
0: yeah i i agree um and last thing I'll say before we wrap up is uh, I really want to mention this. I think it's important. The whole movie hinges on this, this idea of this like emergency message system that comes through this EAM. And the, the script sets it up and Tony sets it up that we all understand, I think, pretty clearly what's going on with that system. Because they do a drill with it where they go through the whole thing where uh, Denzel and I, uh, I know Matt Craven's one of the guys. I can't remember the guy's name. They walk through the whole drill and you see the process of how this has to go down in a drill. So when it really happens, you, you know, now you know, the beats of this and how it has to go through this chain of command I Have to read the numbers and the letters off and, and they there's a lot of complicated military stuff that could get um, could bog things down. But I think they do a really good job of, of making it all very clear of how this works. And what the stakes are too. I mean, very clear about how big the stakes are in this movie. Um, like for what's going on here. And I think that's all like really, really brilliantly laid out because that's the kind of stuff you could be like, so wait, why are they doing this? But, you know, but I think they just handle it so well. And I was like, this time watching, I was like, man, Tony and the writers, like great job just handling all this, like <laughs> this whole thing. So we understand what's going on with the plot because it's so important that we are right there with them understanding what's going on.
1: Well, and the other thing that's so brilliant about that scene is it's also not just exposition, right? Because they have the fire in the galley mm-hmm. and then Hunter's like, why is he running a drill now? And you understand that. You know Ramsey's whole point is, well, we run drills in situations like this because when we're under fire from an Akula, we need to be prepared. You know, you don't get to get emergency action action messages in ideal circumstances, so we're we're getting the exposition of how this whole system works, while also forwarding the conflict that we're going to get between Hunter and Ramsey later on down the road. It's It's such an amazing balancing act. Like, (laughs) so the script for this thing, regardless of how many rewrites or who did passes or what, the script for this thing is so tight and so perfectly put together. Nothing in this movie is superfluous. Nothing in this movie isn't important. Every single scene in some way either advances a character or the plot but in most cases, both at the same time, that's not easy to pull off.
0: Yes. I'm glad you brought that up too, about how that whole thing, it also informs the characters because again, you see both sides where Denzel's pissed that he ran the drill during a fire in the, in the galley. And then g Hackman's has a point that you don't always get these things under perfect circumstances, but also kind of a dick move, which is you know, his whole thing is, uh, you know, kind of like he's following the orders and he's just trying to, you know, he's not going to make things easy. Um, also, I should mention that I read that in the real situation, Gene Hackman was doing the right thing by the book, apparently. <laughs> like, you are supposed to follow that first order, uh, no matter if an incomplete second message comes through. I was like, well, but still, I'm like, I don't know, I'm with Denzel. So, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, that's all. <laughs> yeah it's still a movie it's a I, movie yeah I, yeah I, well i actually i was actually just rereading um the uh, an article uh uh i twitter friend rob hunter had written an article a while ago about the uh great armageddon commentary with ben affleck and michael bay and bruce willis and stuff and especially in particular ben affleck but it, it he reminded me that there's a point where Affleck says i asked uh i asked uh bay you know why uh we couldn't train astronauts to drill and bay told me to shut the fuck up and that was the end of that conversation <laughs> so you know at the end of the day it is still a movie so there is a certain point yeah. where it's
0: like, shut the fuck up it's just a
1: movie,
0: right? because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that story, know, by like, the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, And I mean, I I know, I think Alfred Hitchcock even said that way back at one point that somebody asked, well, why didn't your characters just call the police? And he said, well, if they did, there wouldn't be a movie. You know, <laughs> we yeah. got a little overboard on the all our movies have to be realistic and all this shit. Like sometimes shit just has to happen so we can watch a kick-ass movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking it too. I saw people throw that criticism around, I think some it was on twitter or on letterbox it was like oh this isn't realistic it's a movie what the fuck like it's a drama- <laughs> dramatic situation here um you know and i read that a similar situation this was based off something that happened in russia uh you know where one of the guys came and wouldn't agreed and then they found out oh yeah we shouldn't have fired missiles and they didn't so yeah uh, i mean it's happened there's precedent for it even though everything else feels fairly accurate um how they're doing a lot of things but um again it's a movie we got to have some drama we got to have a movie go <laughs> so i just had to bring that up but i was curious i saw that and i was like oh okay so yeah hackman was right beginning completely second message you still go with the first message but um just thought it was was interesting but uh um yeah it's a movie and it's a fucking great movie (laughs) i don't know what else to say yeah and i mean that's the other thing
1: the end result is too if if people wanted to go the other way and they're like well hackman was right okay great you want your movie to end with a nuclear fucking holocaust this isn't dr strange love jesus christ (laughs) like go along with the fact that denzel's right and 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 we can all i hope agree that nuclear war is bad
0: yes so Trust me, no one gets more bothered by the whole people who can't take a movie at as a movie. I used to have to watch uh, "Back to the Navy" thing. I there was a girl in high school who lived across street from me who I'd always like watch movies with her house, and her dad would like sit in his chair, and he was like an old Navy guy, and it would watch the movies. And if it was anything military related, he would just shit all over. He's like, "That's not how that would go. That's not how that. Would, it's not realistic." I'm like, I wouldn't. I didn't say anything, but I was like, "God damn, it's a movie. Just, just chill out, you know. <laughs> it's like, just enjoy it for one." <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a certain, and trust me, Matt, you know what I do for a living. So I certainly understand that because there is a genre of film that drives me nuts. But even I am still able at a certain point to be like, okay, yeah, but it's also still just a movie. Like, you know know what Crimson Tide is if Gene Hackman turns out to be right? It's a Mad Max prequel. That's not (laughs) the movie that people want
0: oh exactly exactly um <laughs>
1: like, like, like here's the mad max origin story enjoy
0: <laughs> oh man it's oh uh, yeah no i i with you just enjoy movies people come on uh so <laughs> um anything else you want to say on crimson tide we wrap up here oh, or?
1: no man i if i haven't convinced people that i love this <laughs> It. nothing i'm gonna say is gonna uh and i got all my little stories out and stuff so i'm good i think it's i think it's a good time for us to start wrapping it
0: up okay yeah i don't know if we need to sell crimson tide to anybody but if we if you haven't seen it i hope we sold it pretty well <laughs> i mean we're both pretty uh over the moon about it I think we joked beforehand that it was gonna be like a love fest and that's pretty much what it's been so um i'm cool with that that's what i figured we would do so i, I had a blast recording this with you man so um thank you again for doing this
1: (laughs) no thank you man thank you for giving me the chance to do this one um this was yeah I had a blast too and uh and it was a it was an extra nice just like I said I don't watch this every year so it was nice to have a reason to rewatch it and just sit there with my jaw open (laughs) you know uh, no matter how many times I've seen this movie just sit there with my and as I get older I find more and more to love about it like mm-hmm. as I get a better understanding of film and how film is made how movies are made and editing and stuff like that man I enjoyed it more this time than I think I've ever enjoyed it in my life and that's fucking terrific when that happens
0: yeah that's the best when the movie keeps getting better when you watch it it's that's that's special uh so um yeah this was great uh why don't, I'm gonna let you go ahead and just plug all you want to plug people can find you where they can follow you all, all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, you can find me personally uh, at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and Letterboxd. You can follow the Adkins Undisputed podcast on Twitter at Adkins Podcast or on any streaming service or any podcast catcher of your choice. Uh, You will also find on that same feed the new uh, podcast that we're doing, Action for Everyone, where Beyond Skyline and Skyline's director, Liam O'Donnell, and uh, great, great, uh, Twitter friend and and film writer Vice Victus and I uh, every week kind of just break down what's going on in action movies for the week. Uh, it's a very loosey goosey kind of rough uh, podcast, but it's a lot of fun. If you've ever, <clears throat> I hope this is what we achieve. If you've ever sat around a table at a coffee shop or a bar with your friends and just shot the shit about movies that's kind of what we're aiming for so uh hopefully we achieve it but that's where you can find all of us
0: yeah that show is great i love listening to the three of you uh it's I, listen i'm a big fan of the loosey-goosey rough podcast format uh that's kind of what the show is all the time so uh i'm all about it i you guys have great chemistry at, like i don't think any of you have ever hung out in person if i'm not mistaken but you act like nope. you're like nope. Three friends I've known each other for like forever. It's it's incredible and it's so much fun. So yeah, everyone should definitely check that out. Um, so yeah, definitely follow Mike, listen to all his podcasts. It's, it's great. Um, and uh, for our stuff, uh, you can follow the podcast at Film Feast Pod on Twitter. You can follow me at Twitter or on Twitter at Maple eighty seven. Um, you can follow me in the podcast on Instagram at Film Feast, all one word. Um, follow the podcast, any podcast app you listen to. Um, and if to be so kind to rate and review us in the apple store that'd be great really appreciate it um and thank you guys so much for listening and we will see you next time bye everybody